Okay, so should we begin, Ziander? Sure, let's do it. Ziander, welcome. Um, and and it's been wonderful to read your book and, and wonderful to talk to you now. Just to introduce you to the audience, uh, Ziander Sturman is a social policy, political science and international relations graduate, I'm currently working as a researcher and policy manager at JPL Africa, which is based at UCT. Uh, Ziander is a recipient of both um, the Chevening and the Fulbright scholarships and holds advanced degrees in conflict, security and development studies from Sussex University and international development from Brandeis University. At Sussex, Ziander wrote her thesis on the militarization of policing in Brazil and South Africa in a comparative study of post-colonial, post-dictatorship and post-apartheid police institutions. And her undergraduate degrees um, are at Stellenbosch University. Ziander's worked in various roles related to political and social science research over the past decade, ranging from project manager for a youth advocacy focused NGO, to policy researcher for a political party, to political risk analysis in the private sector. She was recently recognized by the Mail and Guardian as one of the top 200 young South Africans this year in the category of civil society, um, alongside other people making their impact and contribution in public life. Well, that, that's my introduction to Ziander, but let's now have Ziander's introduction. Ziander, um, I've asked if you will kick things off by reading a passage from the beginning of your book. And, and I think just to give a, a sense of the voice and the texture of the book is maybe a, uh, the best way to introduce you. So please go ahead. Okay, thank you for that introduction, Johnny. So I grew up in Guguletu in Cape Town where my parents were born and raised. Um, and I also grew up in George, a small town sort of four hours outside of Cape Town where they both worked for a few years in the mid nineties. In these two communities, I learned early on that safety, both the feeling and the reality, was created through relationships with, pe with people around me. It felt like every family on the streets knew to look out for each other and to report anything suspicious or anyone unknown lurking around the neighborhood or around anyone's house, just in case they were dangerous. I was taught uh, vigilance and the importance of telling my parents, aunts and uncles or older neighbors if someone I had never seen before was in our neighborhood, especially because our parents worked long hours and weren't always home themselves. Safety there, therefore was about looking after yourself, but also looking out for each other. Now that I'm older, I still think of safety in the same way. When I imagine being safe and feeling safe, it means uh, being where I want to be and when I want to be there. To me, safety means freedom in both the literal and figurative sense to be free to move around public space and to be free to do so without intrusive thoughts of what might happen to me if I'm not completely aware of my surroundings at all times. But not feeling safe and not being safe in a country with high crime rates means that, I, that what I hope safety is, isn't the same thing as I live every day. I remember when I bought my first car a few years ago, the first thing my father told me to do was to let him drive it around Guguletu for a few weeks so people would think that it was his and no one would bother me when I would eventually drive around my own to and from work. With no one, he meant known people in the neighborhood who were involved in uh, some type of crime and or they were petty thieves. And with the word bother, he meant possible attempts to steal the car or break into it when he wasn't around. In a community like Guguletu, this is what looking after yourself and looking out uh, for each other means. 
You know that you're placed at a higher risk of crime when you have something that others might want to steal, and you know you're surrounded by people who might take the opportunity to do exactly what you fear they will. So you proactively take steps to mitigate any further trouble. In a community like Guguletu, um, which is a, a, a community where the police station is highly visible, but police officers themselves are hardly visible or present, we rely on particular family members, community safety forums, family history, notoriety, and earned respect for our safety. I wrote this book as a way to explore the complexity of one big main question of what it will take to make us all safe together going forward. But I also found myself asking other bigger questions. Those questions were, when we say we want to be safe, what do we mean? When we talk about preventing crime, what do we mean? When we talk about prosecuting crime, what is it that we want? Is it that we want justice or do we want revenge? When we think about reducing crime in South Africa or eliminating it altogether, are our conversations about enacting a, a transformational justice for victims or do we want to ensure that criminals have learned their lesson and received their punishment? Do we want convicted criminals to regret their actions, to show remorse, to show contrition, to perform penance, or does that even matter to us? Are we looking to make sure that others are deterred from committing crime, or do we want to make an example of individual criminals for their crimes? Is that justice? Is that revenge? And which do we want? In a just and fair society, these questions around safety and our feelings and experiences of being safe wouldn't be this complex and wouldn't be this difficult to answer. But we don't live in a just and fair society. Instead, we live in one with hundreds of years of history that have led us here and many unique factors that make our country what it is and make us who we are. Thanks, Siander. I mean, you've, you've posed there two absolutely fundamental questions and and I want to try and tackle them both bit by bit. And I mean, the first is, what does it actually mean to be safe? And what do, we, what do we want from our criminal justice system? And your second question, very provocative question, is given society in which we live, given the country in which we live, can we ever attain it? And I want to start with the second question, um, and, and, and that will lead to the first. And, and to ask in this way, you know, in 1994, we were meant to start from scratch. We were meant to start from a blank slate. We were meant to write policing policy from the beginning. Uh, what went wrong? I mean, I think it's it's really sort of difficult to um, to sort of use the analogy of of trying to build a plane while while you're trying to fly it. Um, you know, in the sense that the country, you know, didn't sort of end up in, in kind of amber jelly that stood still while our leaders figured out, um, you know, all the sorts of infrastructure and, and laws and, um, and governance structures um, that, that needed to be put in place for the country to work for everyone. So, you know, we essentially ended up, I think, in a, in a, in a place where we had a lot of new ideas and new vision, but that didn't match up to practices. So um, with policing, this was incredibly stark in the sense that, um, you know, you, you had this new sort of dispensation of policing um, and a police service um, uh, that was meant to serve everyone and not just, uh, you know, the white minority um, or business interests. And that was, that was a really difficult thing, putting together and cobbling together, um, you know, a, a unitary police force that made sense, but that also was community oriented um, and responsive to, to citizens and had a human rights based approach in the middle. Um, and what that, 
what that meant though is that with the sort of deep inequality that we that we had had for decades um, and by design because of apartheid um, you really kind of had policing the idea of policing and and the practice of policing bumping up against each other but even then worsened um, you know by the fact that there were higher crime rates um, that the police were stretched thin but also at the same time were trying to desegregate in and of themselves and trying to integrate with um, you know, uh, sort of former militant groups um, with like Ngondoresis and Poco. And I think all of that all at once, something had to eventually give. Um, and that's, that give was, was the sort of backsliding into old ideas and practices of policing and, and kind of throwing the baby out of the bathwater in terms of, of a human rights-based policing. I, I mean, it's just amazing to me how quickly the old forms of policing returned even while we were still speaking a new language, even while we were talking of a police service, of crime prevention, you, you know, the old was packaged in the new names. Um, I mean, I remember going out on patrol uh, in the uh, sort of ride-alongs with the police in the late 90s and early 2000s. And just the extent to which policing was about mobilizing police into these huge formations and throwing them at townships over weekends, filling up the vans, throwing people in prison. Um, the way the incarceration rate kept going up and up in the in the very first term of a democratic South Africa, I mean, if you if you look back at it, the, the continuities are quite shocking, and they are so incredibly stubborn. And something you say really provocative at the beginning of your book, more provocative than you've said now, is is that some of those continuities were perhaps inevitable because of the nature of the transition itself because the transition kept so many existing patterns of, of power and inequality in place. Do you, it, is, is that right? Is looking back was not just policing policy, but the very nature of the transition itself, was, was that a, a deep part of the problem? I, I definitely think so. Um, I mean, I, I think that there, there are certainly, obviously positives, um, you know, to, to having a, a negotiated uh, transition and settlement um, but I, I think that there, that there should have been much harder lines um, in terms of, of you know, what, what would be acceptable going forward, um, not just for policing, but the entire idea of, um, of government service, really, um, and public servants. And I, I think there's, there's a, a quote that honestly just has stuck with me ever since I you know, was uh, reading up on it and I found it. Um, and that was essentially from uh, Nelson Mandela. Um, I think it's from 1996 where he essentially um, you know, was trying to sort of soothe um, and reassure the, the police leadership at the time that you know, with the, there's, not, there's not gonna be a witch hunt. There, you know, it isn't going to be um, a case of, of kind of going after police. And looking back, obviously with hindsight being 2020, but looking back on that, the idea of you know, trying to recreate um, and really rebuild a police structure that made sense for the country that we were trying to become that was never going to be a witch hunt and sort of calling anything like that um, a witch hunt or, or not, or being afraid to hold police officers accountable for their previous actions. You know, that, that should have been a really important sort of part of the process. But I think there was a lot of forgiving and there was a lot of looking the other way. Um, and there was a lot of, of no, no real sort of understanding of, of just how difficult it would be to like excavate these, you know, horribly racist and violent practices um, from day-to-day -day policing. And I think that's why we, we still see so many horrifying uh, continuities today. 
And, and, and when you say that the policing built into its structure is it protects the privilege and not the poor, um, and in fact, very often victimizes the poor rather than protects them. I mean, that's, that's a very abstract thing. Tell us, tell us the textures, the grits of it. Tell, t- I mean, tell us something about how that looks. Yeah, I think that, that the way that it's it sort of, you know, if you're, if you're taking a, a kind of high level view of it, um, it's, it's what sort of authors like uh, Tony Samara say um, in terms of the idea of that policing exists for social control. Um, that that in many cases, you know, wealthier people, um, particularly living in suburbs, and again, business and political elites, are very much kind of left to their own devices. That you know, they can uh, sort of get up to whatever they want, and um, uh, in that sense, are kind of always skirting the line of of what's legal and what would be criminal for ordinary people, but isn't considered that uh, for them. Whereas, you know, the policing exactly that you were describing, um, you know, when you're on patrol of just sort of rounding up everyone over and over again and um, all of this sort of proactive policing that uh, throws people in jail um, and, and really sort of traumatizes and, and exposes them um, uh, to the criminal justice system over and over again. Um, that's, that's the, those are the sort of key differences. Um, and I think that uh, always a, an example that I like to use that sort of very clearly illustrates um, precisely that is all the sort of legislation and prosecution around drug use as well, right? Um, and, and drug use and uh, drug abuse in the sense that wealthier people, especially in South Africa, consume drugs probably at an equal rate um, you know, to, to those who are in more low income communities. But wealthier people either are not caught um, you know, with, with those drugs, or they can pay a bribe. And that becomes a funny story they kind of tell at the dinner time, like, oh, you know, <laughs> I was stopped the other day. I got away with it, though. I was able to slip some money, and there's that. Whereas if you're in, in lower-income communities, and particularly in communities that get, um, you know, targeted for arrest quotas um, and, and where they're sort of known drug networks and, and drug sellers, it's often not the drug sellers per se who are being caught over and over again or arrested. It's ordinary people who are, um, you know, who might be in the throes of addiction um, or who are um, recreational users really in the same way that uh, middle-class people themselves can be, but they're the ones who are dragged through, um, you know, the processes of uh, being arrested for drug possession or for drug use um, and, and having a really difficult time bailing themselves out when that becomes the case. So you just have these two completely different systems reacting uh, or, or sort of different system reactions to the exact same thing, uh, just being uh, divided, I think, by class. And, and what do you think of the proposition that some policing theorists give that, that the actual function of policing, the actual role that plays in society is, is not about keeping people safe. It's not about protecting people from crime. It's to remind people of who they are. Um, so, for instance, if you're young and you're and you're black and you live in a township, your your experience of policing tells you who you are. It tells you how low down in the hierarchy of the society you are. Um, if you're middle class and treated with some respect by police on a good day, that is another reminder of who you are. And in a sense, it's 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 kind of a, a reflection of a social order. Um, it shows what that sh- social order is and reinforces it. I mean, that's quite an, that's quite a radical proposition. It's quite a, a, a radical position. Do you do you buy that? Do you think that in some that's what policing is? 
I think so. I mean, it's, it obviously doesn't explain uh, every single aspect or contour of policing. Um, but I think also in deeply, deeply unequal and, and divided uh, societies like South Africa, the US, Brazil, uh, you know, the Philippines um, and other examples, that's precisely what sort of policing is built on, that it really struggles to let go of, of its, its historical, colonial uh, and violent roots. And what it does over and over again is say, this is what the social order is. This is where you fit in. If you ever deviate from that or try to move you know, out, of, out of that line, police are there to, to uh, sort of wrangle you back in and, and make sure um, you stay you know, in these very uh, strict hierarchies. And in that sense, um, I think if, if we looked at, at policing as that and problematized really what it is um, and, and almost, I think, even decoupled it from the idea that, that policing exists solely for community safety or that it's, it's, uh, it's benevolent, I think we can start to break down this idea that uh, you know, the police act for good all the time because that's not necessarily true and that's um, definitely not true in, in, in societies that are uh, very much like South Africa. So, I mean, that leads to a really important point you make in your book, which is to say, intuitively, you think if policing is unequal, then give poor communities more policing resources, and that's going to solve the question. Have, have equity, spend as much in Kailicha as you're spending in Seapoint, uh, mm-hmm. and then there's equity between rich and poor. But, but you're saying it's actually, if policing is the problem, then more resources isn't the solution, right? Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I certainly believe that there's, you know, at least to some aspect, a minimum uh, presence or space for policing, um, you know, to exist. But if that policing perpetuates harm, and if police, um, you know, themselves and police forces are engines of violence, then, you know, it, I, I can't see how uh, sort of adding more police all the time and building more police stations and sort of popping up uh, mobile police stations are necessarily going to solve the problem. And this is also what it comes down to where, um, you know, we, we can't police our way out of the many social issues we have. You know, we're not going to police our way out of gender-based violence and the, and the epidemic of that violence that's out there. We're not going to police our way out of, um, you know, poor uh, infrastructure and, and um, education. That's <laughs> more police isn't going to help that. And so the idea that, that police resources in and of themselves are what create safety is I think exactly that type of idea that needs to be debunked. To honestly say, you know, we should be aiming to prevent crime, and therefore that opens a plethora of options that just um, sort of rolling out more policing with more police vehicles um, closes off. But, but there, there seem to be two different strands to your arguments, and 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 they are very different with different implications. And and the one is that is that you can't put a band-aid over a very unequal society and there, there are deep structural questions that need to be addressed. But it, but it seems that sometimes, just even by implication, there's another argument there that given that, even in the short term, the, the police are, are not and cannot be an agent of safety, mm-hmm. um, uh, that they are, they are toxic, mm-hmm. um, which is a more radical and far-reaching argument. And in your book, I sometimes see you take that argument, sometimes be a bit reticent about that argument. It's a, it, it's a, it's a tough issue. But if you, I mean, this is a crazy idea, but if you were in charge 
of a big budget in Cape Town, a safety budget, what, what would you do with it? So I think that, the, that I would pour a huge amount of that into non-police solutions um, uh, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're sort of simpler, but also more complicated and more nuanced um, sort of approaches, right? So, uh, for example, I think especially in communities um, where we know that there are high levels of, of trauma and violence, um, sort of initiatives that try to essentially um, bring people closer to both government services and access to those services, but also, um, you know, services that, that look at uh, an individual and a household and a community holistically, um, you know, the type of, of interventions that are done in the first thousand days, for example, of a child's life to make sure that they have access to nutrition and basic health care, um, et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, you know, to, to what women need um, and, and the particular uh, barriers they face to entering the workforce, for example, that I would, that's the type of thing that long-term investment leads to safety, uh, you know, towards and, and in. And if I, I would spend a much smaller amount of that budget, uh, essentially trying to facilitate better police community relations, right? So this, this goes back to what I'm saying in the, um, what I said in the introduction of the book, in the sense that there are already, you know, between families and between households and in communities, there are already sort of unspoken rules and, and relationships um, that sort of form an idea of safety. And that, that safety has nothing to do with the police. Um, but, but there is a sort of space for the police to connect, um, you know, to, to those sort of networks and, um, and understand those community dynamics. And of course, communities aren't exactly the same, but um, uh, where, where police exist, they don't police, you know, they don't exist outside of a, a community or a society. They should be part and parcel of that. Um, and, and I think that's, if I can jump into for one second, <laughs> the sort of events of this week, I think that's, it's part of the reason why the police are really struggling in a lot of communities because they, you know, have operated and have been seen as completely outside of the, of the community. And so are not able to anticipate, um, you know, what's, what's going to happen next and where the next um, sort of um, outburst of violence is. And that's again, where, where we're seeing taxi associations, for example, um, and trade unions coming forward and saying, we'll be the ones to protect our neighborhood against vandalism and looting um, and violence. And, and the police could not be more, more absent, I think in, in that sense. And that just really sort of shows us that there's very little um, in terms of police community relations. Yeah. Um, let's take our first question, Ziander. Um, um, from Ntabi Singh. And Ntabi Singh says, it's a, it's a cynical question maybe, do you see an opportunity really for the police to work better with communities? Uh, it's such, such an incredibly yeah, complicated sort of question, I think in, in the sense that where, where that inequality exists, um, and this is something uh, that you say, uh, by the way, if anybody doesn't know, uh, Johnny's book, Thin Blue, um, is a must read for anybody who's trying to understand policing in South Africa. But something that, that uh, you said in, in the book that I thought was um, incredibly poignant is the fact that, you know, the police and, and communities meet over and over again in these very sort of unhappy um, circumstances where there's a temporary reprieve of some sort, but knowing that there's no sort of long-term solution to to uh, communities' problems of, of poverty and inequality. And I think in that sense that 
as far as the police sort of allow themselves to still be seen as uh, the front line of government fighting back against its own citizens and pushing them back into, you know, this sort of crouched position of, of poverty and inequality and hunger, really. Um, you know, I, that any sort of trust and confidence um, and relationship building with the police won't exist. Um, and I'm sure that there are communities out there that, that sort of have relations, uh, you know, police and safety, uh, sorry, police and community relations that are a lot better than the sort of average. Um, but but if, if the, the police sort of lean into this idea of themselves being exactly that, being uh, the arm of social control, um, you know, if they continue to, to traumatize and brutalize um, activists uh, like those from Abashali Basam Jondolo, who are working towards realizing land rights, then you know they they're never going to be seen as as a trusted ally um, in in the fight against poverty and inequality. Just just uh, just to say to the audience briefly, please don't be shy. Please ask questions. I, I can ask I can ask Zianda um, questions forever, but um, it would be great to hear from as many of you as possible. Um, Zianda, I mean, a question about you. You know, you say. The, the police is so out of touch that at the moment in the last few days, it's the taxi associations, uh, the, the, the trucking associations that have that have stepped into the breach. I mean, in a, in a way, it's, isn't it kind of always like this, that we've always had this fiction that it's that the police are primarily responsible for safety, but actually in the fabric of everyday life, it, it they, they're seldom the front line. The front line are the people who are running that fabric, the people whose ear to the ground, the people who are organizing other people. That is, that is at an everyday level where safety has always come from and always will come from. Um, and if that's true, for me, it raises quite a delicate question because firstly, should it be the function of these, these organizations at a formal level to see to safety? Is it, is it fair to dump the question on, on civil society in that way? Um, and secondly, what are the consequences? Um, is, is that another form of privatizing security? How, how do we go about regulating that? How do we go about organizing that? That's a really good question. I think, um, you know, it, it really sort of speaks to this idea then that um, I think individual communities, you know, then decide for themselves and, they may, and there may be um, tensions really in, in how different communities deal with um, different circumstances. It's also the type of space that, you know, it looks uh, altruistic and, and is to a certain extent benevolent on one hand, but on the other is the same thing that fuels vigilante violence. Um, you know, when, when, there's, when there's more of a deference to um, sort of informal, um, uh, not even justice really, but informal sort of structures in that sense, then, then that could lead to something completely different. I think it's, you're, you're right, it is deeply unfair, um, you know, to expect that ordinary people who are going about their day um, are also uh, sort of acting as these safety structures um, simply because the, the police can't. And then it raises that sort of further question of what on earth are we paying for when we give 99 billion rands to the police service every single year and you still have people having to step up to do the job uh, really of, of this idea of, of police. Um, and that's, that's the really sort of tough question that people have to ask of, you know, we can either have this large, uh, you know, 160 uh, sort of thousand plus minus police force that costs 99 billion rand a year, um, or we can have our own sort of uh, internal community structures, but 
we can't really afford both. Um, you know, we can't we, we can't sort of have this quasi um, uh, community structure and and what it looks like in the suburbs and in business centers is private security, of course, which is already uh, you know double triple the size of the police force itself. But having all of these sort of uh, different nodes, but then specifically you know government um, uh, agency and body that sucks in all of this money but isn't able to to justify its existence, um, I think that's there's that sort of larger question as well of we're either going to have to invest in one or the other. Um, but, but at this point, I, I can't see the point of sort of pouring money into a, a, a service that isn't working for us. Yeah. I have a question from Kirsten, um, and I'm going to add a question of my own to it. Her, her question is, what is your opinion of the SANDF being deployed this week? And, and if I can just add a broader, I don't know if this is an unfair question, maybe it's just too amorphous and big, but it's really, what is this week about? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it started off with, uh, with Jacob Zuma going to jail. Um, it's turned into much, much, much more than that. Um, I just think this question of whether the army should be deployed almost naturally goes with the bigger question of what's actually happening. Yeah, no, that's that's a hundred percent true. I mean, um, I've sort of been uh, interviewed about this like quite a bit, um, and I think that the answer is really complicated um, in the sense that this week sort of started off, um, you know, with pro Zuma loyalists um, explicitly saying that their goal is to is to have Zuma released from prison, um, and I think that 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 type of grievance um, deeply tapped into uh, you know what what people are feeling at the moment. Um, in terms of an extension of level four lockdown with absolutely no sort of social relief to, to go with that. Um, but this really this sort of sinking feeling of when on earth is this gonna end? We've had so many setbacks with our vaccination you know, rollout. We've experienced such enormous amounts of, of death and trauma and grief um, that, that this political moment sort of morphed into a much bigger um, uh, sort of social, social moment. Um, and that's also not to say that, that there aren't sort of aspects of, of the violence and the looting that are opportunistic and criminal. That, that definitely exists, I think. Um, but, you know, we, we, this, is, this is really just sort of tapping into um, uh, underlying feelings and grievances and um, pain, really, that have, that's been there for a really, really long time. Um, and, and that's, so if we're, if we're then saying, the thing that always worries me is seeing how the military gets rolled out over and over again, right? I, I speak about in the book how, particularly on the Cape Flats, uh, the military was rolled out in 2011 uh, in Lavender Hill um, um, uh, and surrounding communities, in 2015 again under Operation Fiela, and now again in 2019. And in each instance, you know, you've had some sort of sense of, of order, quote unquote, restored to those communities, but, um, it's sort of flaring right back up again. I mean, if, if you look across the Western Cape at the moment, there's enormous amounts of violence um, uh, that's, that's connected to extortion rings and taxi violence and, um, and other sort of instances. And those, that's never going to be something that the military can solve. So unless we're, we're like digging deep and looking for deeper solutions, I think we're, we're going to find ourselves rolling out the military more and more often to do more and more sort of work specifically also because we now kind of view the police as being um, incapable of doing uh, their jobs and, and not being capacitated to do so. Um, and, and one final point on this, I spoke to a journalist earlier today and you know, he was like, 
do you think this is going to calm down by the weekend and things will sort of go back to normal? Um, and I said, I sort of hate the idea that I'm living through so many um, world firsts and uh, paradigm shifting events, especially in South Africa. But the, the last one that I can look back on that's, that's you know, sort of had this um, feeling and that tapped into something much bigger was fees must fall. And that didn't end overnight, right? That that was an enormous um, uh, social conversation where we all had to um, reflect and, and really sort of look at, at particularly what was promised to you know, students and the idea that education will take you out of poverty um, and that not being fulfilled. And those are the type of questions, again, that we need to ask ourselves that, you know, what, what, what sort of economy exists that locks this many people out um, uh, and then specifically even shuts down and says even further, you know, stay at home, do nothing, but also find a way to survive. Yeah. Just to, to, to move away from this week for a moment, so we've got a, a question from Jesse in the audience who says, um, in his book, A Country at War with Itself, Anthony Altbecker claims that within the police, detectives and detective work have been systematically underfunded and not prioritized relative to uh, beat cops. Um, could you comment on whether this is still true? Was it ever true? Um, compared to other possible interventions, do you think this would be effective at reducing crime? I, I think that's a great question because if there's a murder, if something serious happens, I would say you really do want it investigated. That is, that is one function that police play that really perhaps is unsubstitutable. Do, do you agree? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, and, I, um, and if I can, I'm going to uh, punt two other books that I think people uh, should be reading at this time. So one of them is uh, Give Us More Guns by Mark Shaw. And the other is To the Wolves by uh, Karen Dolly. Um, and both of those authors do a really, really good job of um, really kind of looking at uh, um, sort of corruption, um, but, um, but also maladministration within the police, um, at, especially in recent years. It's kind of led to this um, situation where, uh, you know, various functions uh, within the police no longer um, function the way that they should, or they've been uh, deeply compromised um, and, and so are no longer able to, to deliver results. I mean, from, from our own research, sort of knowing that um, uh, the Western Cape uh, Detective Service specifically is, is uh, under-resourced and underfunded, that's one aspect of it. And particularly given that uh, the Western Cape and, and the Eastern Cape, which is another part of the book, um, that both have very high uh, crime levels, but particularly very high murder levels, you know, it sort of makes no sense to have, or at least in my mind, makes no sense to have a very large sort of visible uh, uh, budget or visible policing um, and not nearly enough effort um, um, and funding going towards detective services. And then if we really want to go, you know, kind of deep into things, then we, you know, we'd have to take a look at, at the staffing of forensic um, uh, labs and all of the other auxiliary services that, uh, you know, are supposed to help police officers prepare dockets um, and prepare evidence, um, you know, in, in order for people to, to, uh, to be prosecuted um, for serious crimes uh, such as murder. So it's, there are very many sort of, I think, links, um, you know, across the supply chain, if we kind of looked at it that way, um, that, are, that are quite compromised. Um, and yeah, it's sad to say that that, that's, that, that is still the case in, in, uh, in very many places. 
So if you if you are putting money into policing, you you would invest much more heavily in detection and and all the technical requirements around it, and and much less in boots on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think especially in in uh, you know in the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape and uh, and Gauteng, where there's very specific um, uh, sort of problems and issues in that sense. Um, if you're in a more rural area, that's not necessarily the case. Um, and and more sort of, um, I guess, resources, uh, you know, would be helpful in terms of police vehicles um, or, or sort of other um, equipment or personnel or training um, that would be, that sort of meets that community's need. Um, and I think this also sort of speaks to the fact that there are also many different South Africans there isn't just one that that uh, that sort of functions. I mean, Cape Town is already different from like George, right? Which are two places that that I uh, grew up in, and then much more so, uh, you know, being different in in terms of um, uh, policing that's needed in Tabeja, for example, or that's needed in Kwakwa, or that's needed in um, in other sorts of of communities as well. And um, the sort of one kind of blanketish approach. Um, is also one that that doesn't serve people. Yeah. Um, I have a, a question from uh, Sia Kualisa, um, who says this may be too much to ask, Xander, although I don't think it is. But did you find any differences in the social relationships between police with older community members and with younger com- community members? It's a really interesting question. Um, so, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, spend uh, huge amounts of time, uh, particularly, you know, with, with one sort of uh, uh, age group of police officers um, or community members. But I think that there's, um, I think that, that a lot of the, the sort of relations uh, and I think even kind of trust in the police um, or where it exists, because it's fairly few and far, far between, uh, sort of exists more where um, communities either know of a of an individual police officer who goes really above and, and beyond the call of duty um, or you know particularly to, to sort of police leaders whether they be station commanders um, uh, or others or who happen to be involved in other uh, you know community leadership structures such as churches um, or, or civil society and that's where the, the connection sort of lies. And that then feeds into um, a trust and relationship, uh, uh, you know, in their in their sort of uniformed uh, way. So in that sense, I think that that there isn't a kind of natural trust that exists um, between a lot of communities or uh, or or individuals um, and the police. It's more on that like one-on-one personal relationship level, um, yeah, which is also indicative of the fact that the institution isn't trusted, but certainly individuals uh, within it sometimes are. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And, 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 I mean, what it brings to mind to me is you, you, you quote um, the policing theorist, uh, Egon Bittner. Um, mm-hmm. And he says, what, what are police? Mm-hmm. And his answer is that the police are the people you call when something is happening that shouldn't be happening and somebody has to do something about that now. So there's an emergency, civilians are out of control, something is deeply wrong, instinctively, this is who you call. Is that right? So I would say yes, because, um, you know, I, I think especially the sort of uh, messaging in, in any kind of uh, democratic society is precisely that. Precisely that. 
um, you know, that the that the police are are supposed to be an, an intermediary in particularly in instances of conflict. Um, in South Africa, it becomes complicated and nuanced uh, in the sense that, I mean, I know plenty of people who would call private security long before they would call the police. Um, again, plenty of people who would call an uncle before they called the police. Um, but it's, it's, I think that that particularly in, in business theories, the, you know, the police are, are supposed to occupy, you know, specifically that role of trusted intermediary, of wanted in, intermediary, of somebody, you know, who can come in and, and um, uh, resolve a, a conflict and peacefully um, doing so. Um, this reminds me of, of a part of um, uh, one of Andrew Fall's books. Um, and I think it was on police work and identity. Um, and he sort of tells the story of uh, the small town in the Eastern Cape um, and this one particular um, police station that's in Gompo, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where, you know, a police officer is called into, or somebody uh, comes over to the police station and says, look, I have a dispute with somebody. Um, and the police officer go, goes, okay, I agree. Let's mediate this. Let's uh, go out. And it was a dispute over puppies. <laughs> it was, you know, these two people who had come to an agreement that, uh, they would sort of breed dogs and and in the end, you know, the one didn't want to give give over the puppies to the other. But that's 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 what Bittner is talking about. And that's what what we'd like to kind of think, um, you know, of police officers, that they can be trusted to come into a situation, listen to both sides, mediate a conflict um, and essentially say, OK, great. You know, everybody has now sort of followed the law um, and there's no need to resort, resort to any sort of violence. Um, so that happens in Gombo every once in a while. Um, it's, it's, you know, may happen in, in uh, a few other communities, but yeah, certainly not, not the experience over the whole. Yeah. There's a question from Disa, which is, um, it's about as fundamental as a question is ever going to be. Do you think uh, a total redefinition of policing in this country presupposes a redefinition of our social contract, as well as a comprehensive approach to tackling inequality? It's a huge question, and and I want to I, I want to begin it by breaking it down into well, they're letting it emerge from your book, really. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as you were working on this book, Black Lives Matter in the U.S. Um, was gaining more and more traction. It was immensely interested in policing. It was asking searching questions about policing, and one of the projects, one of the political programs that came out of it was abolition. Mm -hmm. um, and you say in the book that initially you were very, very skeptical of the idea of abolition, but the more you read and the, the more you thought, the more you began to, uh, your own position began to shift. Can, can you talk us through that? Why, why were you skeptical at first and why did your skepticism begin to recede as you read and thought? So it's, it's really interesting. I think it's down to, to two different things. The, the first being that, um, you know, I think when you're, when one sort of uh, first thinks of abolition, it's this idea that today there are prisons and police and tomorrow there'll be nothing. Um, there'll be sort of nothing of that sort and, and, uh, uh, and life will be radically different in that sense. And it's really, really difficult. I think when you've, um, you know, grown up in societies, um, again, like, like South Africa, where there is so much insecurity and feelings of, of not being safe, um, to kind of ask yourself, well, who would, you know, take up that role? Like, yes, on an individual level and community level, I can, you know, rely on my father or somebody else to, to sort of uh, be that, that um, beacon of safety. But on a, on a wider sort of social level, like where will the bad people go, for example? 
Um, and, and I think then that, that once you, or once I at least, um, really sort of delved into the theory and the idea around it, um, being specifically that, that, that creating conditions and social conditions that, um, you know, sort of take away people's desperation and need to, to commit crimes, to fulfill either their basic needs um, or, or to deal with um, a lot of the psychosocial issues that drive people towards violence um, and sort of re-traumatizing themselves and their communities. That's, that's the type of work that abolition is interested in. And I think it's, it's specifically the type of work um, that our society would, would uh, benefit from as well. Um, this, this also leads to uh, sort of com uh, conversations I had, first of all, but also um, texts that I read, uh, specifically the work of uh, Dr. Kelly Gillespie, um, you know, who, who in her writing about the idea of a moral prison and specifically that, that theory emerging in South Africa after, um, uh, after apartheid, it was also kind of hearkening back to, uh, you know, the Freedom Charter and kind of looking at that and saying that, that that's a document that had a very radical vision in 1955, especially for South African society, way past colonialism, way past the idea of, of apartheid and one that everybody sort of mobilized and organized around. And the language in that, that document and in that sort of declaration of what we want society to be, which is the backbone of, um, uh, of our Bill of Rights, also has pro-abolitionist language that you know, really sort of speaks of the police and the prisons and the military, um, first of all, serving the people, but secondly, not sort of occupying this like huge outsized space in society in the way that it did in apartheid. Um, and so reading through all of that and, and you know, wading through the, the, the intricacies and nuances um, of conversations in the, the American abolitionist space, but then also speaking to, um, uh, to somebody like Suhela Sarajpal, for example, um, who's a legal scholar who wrote uh, her thesis on, uh, on abolition as a decolonial imperative. Like all of those strands coming together um, you know, made it really difficult for me to say abolition would, would never work and, or abolition as a theory um, uh, doesn't exist. Um, because honestly, it's, it's precisely that sort of reformation of society. Um, and it's the type of thing that we were working towards, certainly in 1955, I think, um, but also in 1994. And that's, that's the energy and that's the spirit we need to recapture, that we don't have to be, we don't have to tinker around the edges with what we have. We shouldn't be afraid to, to go, this sucks. <laughs> and we need to radically change it um, and, and make steps towards doing so. I mean, you, you've just given me the opportunity to ask a question I've been dying to ask the whole conversation and just haven't found the right space in which to ask it. But it's, God, how best to begin. You know, when, when, when many years ago, when I was doing on the ground work on policing, and I'm way out of touch now, But, but one of the things that struck me is how incredibly complicated community responses to policing are. I mean, you, you alluded a moment ago to individual officers being trusted, the institution not. But I got a sense that even the institution, people felt quite complex thoughts about. On the one hand, they absolutely knew that they were victimized by police because they were poor, because they were black, that they were not getting the service that they required and, and had the right to. On the other hand, when the police launched these major operations, a lot of older people seemed to feel some satisfaction. And it was really a generational thing. It's like somebody is going to discipline these youths and the harsher they discipline them, the better. And 
And it just leads me to, to, to wonder, you know, abolition came out of the American context where things are so stark. There's, there's a black minority. It's policed in ways nobody else in the country is policed. The racism is so stark. The narrative going back to slavery, you know, 400 years ago is, is, is there. It's, there, there. There's a long historical arc to evoke. Here, it's so much more complicated. There's a democratic government. Black people are in the majority. All those resonances around abolition um, are just more difficult. And it, and it makes policing and criminal justice more difficult. I mean, I think if you had gone to a township and survey people about whether prison sentences are too long, whether there are too many people in prison, I think a lot of people would say, no, put, put more people in. It, 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 we, we seem to have a history which makes the questions, your bread and butter questions, really, really hard. I, I think that, 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 that popular culture is just so conflicted about these things. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree 100%. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly don't think of, of abolition and especially in the South African context as something that would, you know, take off tomorrow and everybody would be like, yes, absolutely, we should shut down prisons. Um, you know, you're, you're right. There's, uh, it was really sort of disheartening to see a conversation around, um, uh, you know, people in prison receiving vaccines um, and how many people were very, very happy to say they absolutely don't deserve them and they especially don't deserve them, uh, you know, above me, a taxpayer. Um, and I think that 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 type of, of that type of attitude and that type of uh, I, I think especially sort of looking at at you know who uh, or looking at people in prison that that comes from the fact that you know there, there's this incredibly punitive logic that runs through um, so much of of South African society that uh, you know that that really kind of discounts a lot of structural issues at play that if you're caught and if you end up in prison, you're a bad person, you absolutely deserve to be there. But at the very same time, that is completely at odds with, um, with, uh, with South Africans' experience of poverty um, and the fact that poverty can really push you to make a lot of decisions. Um, and I, I wouldn't even say to make choices because you know when you're poor, what choices do you have? You don't have a sort of sweet deck that you can um, pull from, but it's that, it's these sort of, constant tensions of, of this idea of everybody in prison is a, is a terrible, horrible person. And at the same time, kind of knowing that, that, that poverty is so structural and so widespread um, uh, and, and not sort of understanding um, those two things. And that also goes you know, to, to speaking about sort of gender-based violence, the idea that, again, if somebody harms me, I want to make sure that, that they're uh, put in prison and, and they're harmed and they uh, learn a lesson. Um, and in that sense, do they? I mean, what do our prisons exist for? Do they exist to teach lessons? Do they rehabilitate? Do, do they allow any sort of reintegration into society? And if we just, I think, really sort of stopped for a second to ask ourselves, who is in prison? Um, what what uh, uh, purpose does our prison serve? Um, and in that sense, are we happy to, to sort of keep feeding people into the criminal justice system, um, kind of knowing that on the other side, they're not going to be rehabilitated, they're going to struggle to integrate um, back into society, um, then, then we, you know, you have to start sort of questioning those, those ideas as well around uh, crime and punishment. And so it's not a very satisfactory answer at all. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's, it's, of, of the issues in South Africa have easy answers. No, I think it's an answer which does the complexity of the question justice. We, we, we only have a, a couple more minutes. So I want to 
bring things back to the last few days and what's what's mm. been going on. Um, this this is a, admittedly a leading question, but to what extent do you think what's happening now in the last couple of days is in part the chickens coming home to roost over the way lockdown was organized last March? You, you know, watching it unfold, I, I was horrified. It was it was the throwback to deep apartheid to the 1950s. It was locking people in their communities under a military occupation and cutting them off from work. I, I was astounded at how compliant people were, mm-hmm. um, how, how resigned. I thought maybe it's because it's a virus that people are scared of. Maybe it's because of democratic governments and people think that it must have their best interests at heart. I mean, do you, do you think this could be read as a kind of a delayed response? I certainly think so. Um, and, I, and not just of, over the last year, um, but over sort of multiple years of you know, failing um, service delivery, of, no, of low to no economic growth, um, you know, of climbing uh, unemployment numbers. And so in that sense, this, this has been a very, very slow burn. Um, and I mean, I, I really, I hate the analogy of a ticking time bomb because I, I don't kind of like to look at society in that way. But certainly this, this was exactly the type of thing um, that, you know, was always sort of part of the country as an undercurrent. Um, you know, this idea that we could keep the country going and we could keep this idea of an economy going with, with a permanent underclass um, and with a sort of permanent group of people that we're happy to send the military uh, or the police to deal with. Um, and, and in that sense, I mean, again, I, it, it's difficult for me because I wasn't in the country um, at the start of level five lockdown uh, last year, but I sort of certainly looked at it as um, people sort of adhering to, uh, to the lockdown uh, restrictions, thinking that and hoping that in this particular case, government would do its part. That it would come to you know come to the party and um, as people exactly what as people did exactly what they were essentially asked or told to do in terms of staying at home, um, that government would then make sure that food parcels were were rolled out and that was a disaster, um, or to make sure that that uh, distress grants were rolled out and that was even incredibly tricky um, you know sort of given the austerity agenda um, that at the very same time uh, has been uh, pushed and promoted. Um, uh, by Tito Mboweni, and then ironically, you know, 10 billion rand is, is made available for SAA, for example. So I think that it's, it is precisely that, that, um, you know, the, these like constant setbacks and this constant idea that we can go back into lockdown at any moment and that people can be thrown back into that limbo, that uncertainty and that place of, of desperation, um, I think is, is what's sort of underlying um, a lot of what we've seen uh, the past few days. Um, just to remind everybody, uh, Ziander's new book is called Can We Be Safe? The Future of Policing in South Africa. And it's available at exclusive books, both online and in physical stores. And I, I can't more strongly or highly recommend that you read it. Given what's going on in this country now, given what's been going on in the last 48, 72 hours, this is really something which gets deep beneath the surface and, and asks what's going on from the ground up. Um, Zianda, thank you so much um, and, and all the best for this book. May it have all the success that it deserves. Thank you so much, Johnny. And, and thank you for this conversation. It's been fantastic. And also, obviously, to everybody listening, thank you so much. 